see here. Oh, fantastic. It looks like it's gradually deciding to work. Brilliant. On May the 8th, 1945, the Allies declared victory in World War II. But it was a victory that didn't look much like a victory. Globally, it's estimated that somewhere between 70 and 85 million people died. A further 11 to 20 million people became refugees and were displaced from their homes. You can see some of the devastation here in some of the major cities of Europe. I think the first one here is, is Stalingrad. And then the second one is Berlin. comes up maybe gradually and and then there's also a picture of London as well and only just three snapshots of three places affected. The European economy collapsed with 70% of industrial infrastructure completely destroyed and if it wasn't for within four years from 1948 to 1952 receiving 149 billion dollars of aid Europe possibly would have just simply collapsed. This was a victory, but it didn't look much like a victory. And yet it's also true to say after all of that, would you really have wanted to have given up the freedom that had been so hard fought for? Jesus' crucifixion is a strange kind of victory. In many ways, it doesn't look much like a victory. Even as Jesus rises on that Sunday morning, I'm not sure that it's totally clear exactly how significant this really is. One man being raised again. And yet, Jesus' resurrection shows he was victorious over sin. And secondly, gives us hope of a resurrection just like his. If you want to turn to those uh, verses there, you might find that helpful as we go along. The first thing we see here that Paul gives us here is a, a reminder of the power of the gospel in those first two verses. He tells them, I would remind you of the gospel. The answer to the Corinthian struggle here, and you know, remember we're joining a book here that's 15 chapters in and this is the end bit. What has it all really been about? Well, they've had this struggle to reach out without selling out. To reach out to people who don't know Jesus yet, but in such a way that is actually faithful and authentic to actually the message and the person of Jesus. And what is Paul's answer to that? Well, actually, throughout the book, it is to come back to the gospel. And he'll do it again here in this final chapter. I would remind you of the gospel. And I guess this is not a new message for them. And it's not a new message for you, probably. And so why is it that they need reminding? Why is it that we might need reminding this morning? This is a church that's been uh, brought together in amazing circumstances, really, from people who have been previously worshipping in pagan temples. And now under the pressure of the culture that had looked down on them, that had pushed them to the margins, where they were greatly outnumbered, it would be so easy to give up the message of the gospel, which is countercultural, which is going to put you at odds with the crowd. Why do we need reminding? The same. In a way, everything has changed, and yet nothing is different. 
we live in that same reality, don't we? So I would remind you of the gospel, the gospel that I preached to you. In fact, actually, in the, in the original Greek in which this is written, so the Bible's first off written in Greek, that was the language of the world at the time, and then translated into every other language. And in, in the original, what it says is, uh, the gospel that I gospeled you with. It's the gospel that has brought them together, that has made them, has brought them into existence. The power of God for the salvation of those who hear it. He brings them back to the gospel. You know, everybody gospels, don't they? Everybody has things that they are passionate about and that they will talk about frequently, whether it's a religion or not. If it's somebody who's into sort of selling you juice plus or herbal life, they'll gospel you on herbal life. Uh, no offense to those who are, but you know, one of the observations perhaps it's been made of vegans is that they will gospel people about veganism. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of great reasons why you would, but it, that can be a gospel, can't it? If someone is hugely passionate about a sport, they will gospel you about that team. Teams will, will play over the course of this weekend. And if you listen in to BBC Radio 5 Live tonight, you'll have some great entertainment, whether you like football or not, listening to the people whose gospel has fallen in because their team has lost and they're devastated and they've just got to tell the nation. Everybody gospels. But Paul seeks to keep his focus here on the message of Jesus. And what does that look like? Well, look here at those verses one to two here the gospel that i preached to you which you've received in which you stand and by which you are being saved look at those four things that he has preached to them past you have received it you've taken hold of it in which you currently present tense stand and by which present continuous tense you are being saved it's not a one-time event. Actually, it's a lifetime journey, isn't it? Of the gospel coming to work on you. The gospel gospeling you. What really has power to change, to help us to stand, to keep, uh, keep working on me, is the gospel. And so he says, if you hold fast to this word, unless you believed in vain. There's this need to keep our focus upon the gospel. And the fact that it's encouraged reminds us here that there's a temptation for it to not. Paul reminds us of the power of the gospel. But now we get something of the gospel message. What is this gospel that Paul has given them? What is this gospel that he says has brought them together, that he's given them, that they've received, that they've taken hold of, that's helping them to stand and that will keep working on them so that they are being saved. Well, now he gives a summary. It expands somewhat on his even shorter summary of the gospel in chapter two, where he said, I I've decided to know nothing amongst you other than Christ and him crucified. That's the shortest summary of all of what he's made his message and his life's work about. But here it's expanded just a little bit more for us to help us. He says, I've delivered to you, verse three here, as of first importance, what I also received. There's something of a healthy tradition there, isn't there? Tradition is a funny thing that people like to imagine they don't have traditions, seen as generally a bit of a negative thing to just follow traditions, except that is a tradition 
tradition. <laughs> That's just a newer tradition to go against certain other traditions. It's we all follow certain traditions. It's about making a judgment call on ones that seem to be better than others. There's a healthy thing to tradition here. He's saying, I didn't make this message up myself. I'm passing on to you what I also heard before me. And the people who gave it to me had received it from somebody else. I've delivered to you as a first importance what I received. It could even be that Paul's verses here quote an early Christian creed. That actually he's quoting something that in churches, in gatherings, they would have shared together. The importance of that is to say, if that's the case, then the acceptance of the resurrection as a crucial part of the gospel message has clearly happened very early on. Because Paul writes this in the sort of 50s and 60s AD. Jesus is crucified around about 30 AD. This is only around 30 years after. In fact, this is being written before the gospel accounts have been there. So what it tells us is that the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't create the mythology of resurrection. It was already there. And it was already there potentially enough for someone to have uh, penned a recognized uh, creed that was being used across churches in the known world. This is an accepted orthodox belief. And look at the uh, four things here we see in the nature of this gospel message. Firstly, it's about atonement. Verse three here, Christ died for our sins. At the heart of the gospel is this idea that Jesus's death was for our sins. And we could put that in a few simple ways. How about this? That firstly, it's necessary that sin has distanced us from God in such a way and raised a penalty that needs paying so that Jesus's death was needed because of our sin. That Jesus's death was also substitutionary, that the penalty for sin is our life, but to save us, Jesus dies. That Jesus's death was a punishment or he was taking the punishment due to us for our sins. And that thirdly, Jesus's death is satisfactory. That because Jesus was sinless, because he wasn't only man, but he was indeed God, Jesus's death was enough for our sins. The gospel is about atonement. Christ died for our sins. Secondly, it's about his death. Verses three to four here, that he died and he was buried. Jesus really died, and that really matters. He didn't just faint, like our Muslim friends would say, because they can't accept the concept that, that any God would possibly die, nor is it simply a myth, as some of our atheist friends would claim. This is a really crucial part of it, that he really did die. And then thirdly, that he really did rise. It's about resurrection. He was raised, verse 4 here, on the third day, just as Jesus had prophesied. Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, he prophesies three times to his disciples that he will die and rise on the third day. By the way, as well, um, you have basically no control on when you die. Probably don't need me to tell you that, but just worth reminding you of that, because here he's <laughs> prophesying, I'm going to die. And also, you have even less control on being able to raise yourself and being able to raise yourself on a specific day. 
And yet Jesus explicitly, multiple times, tells his followers that is exactly what he will do and it's exactly what happens. How do we know that God accepts Jesus' sacrificial offering of himself? Well, he rises. How can we hope for new life? He rises to new life. It's about atonement, death, resurrection, and fourthly, it's about witnesses. Verses 5 to 8, we get a list here of the witnesses who appeared to Cephas or to Peter, then to the 12, then to more than 500, then to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, to me. These are witnesses. This is not a mass hallucination. Again, if, if you've ever been around anybody taking hallucinogenic drugs uh, and experiencing that, um, you can't control what's going on. That's a lot of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> you want to help, but what are you to do? You, you basically just have to wait for things to wear off and settle down and just be there with them. You'll see it this afternoon. It will happen in my house. Here's a word of prophecy that as my boys get on a sugar high, I will not be able to control and shepherd them. I will attempt to. I will lose my voice in the process, but I will not be able to control them in those moments. How on earth can you really believe that a mass hallucination to more than 500 people at the same time could in any way be organized or orchestrated? It's just completely improbable, isn't it? And the apostles stake their credibility on this being a testimony to what they heard, to what they saw, to what they had touched. The gospel is rooted in a person, Jesus. It's rooted in historical events, things that really happened, not just metaphors, things that really happened at a real time around real people in a real place with people who saw it and can say, I was there. Paul will say that here, that people who were there, some of them still alive, you can go talk to them, ask them. And it's rooted in the prophecies of scripture. That is, use a big word, it's theocentric, not anthropocentric. It's centered upon God, not centered around people. It's different to the religion of our day. There's a landmark study of uh, religious sort of belief and observance in America in the mid 2000s. And it summarized the belief of uh, American young adults as being moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it's groundbreaking because actually it's true not only there, it's actually true a lot of the world over. That is, that what God is asking for is, is moralistic. God wants people to be good people, to be nice people, much like other religions. And here's a bunch of rules that will help you to do that. And good people get to heaven when they die. That it's therapeutic, that at, at the center, the goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. And, you know, Jesus is one way in which you can feel good about yourself and that it's deism, that God exists, he creates the world, he kind of orders the world, but he's pretty hands-offish, really, and he doesn't really have to be particularly involved, uh, except, you know, kind of when you want him to be in an emergency, then you might sort of call upon him, so that Jesus becomes a coach, it's moralistic, he's a coach who can make you good, uh, he's a therapist who'll help you to feel good about yourself, to think good things, and that he's like the weekend dad who shows up to spoil you every now and again, shows up to help you out when you got yourself in a hole. No, this is completely different. 
And yet, I think probably the question is, can we rely on the message of the resurrection, though? Can we really trust it? That's often the question of our culture, isn't it? It's a message that's looked down upon. You can see even in the ancient culture, in, in the early days and years after Jesus' resurrection, how this happens. Um, if it's able to get up on the screen in a minute, you, you might be able to see something called the Alexa Manus Graffito. It's a picture uh, dating to the early days after Jesus' resurrection that is mocking the belief of one Alexa Manus. And it pictures uh, a, a sort of part human, part horse-like figure being crucified. And it's widely accepted and thought that uh, this is depicting Jesus, partly made to be like a horse to mock him. And it says Alexa Manos worships his God, a picture of him with his arms out in front of it. We know from the manuscript records of scripture that this message is reliable. Even within uh, the realm of ancient historical documents, the Bible is unprecedented in the number and the scale and the quality of the manuscript evidence. The next closest to the New Testament has around 600 uh, existing historical copies of original manuscripts. The New Testament has over 25,000. It has them at a far greater rate of accuracy. And it has them at a far closer date to its original printing than any other work known to humanity. It's inherently reliable. The historian, former professor of ancient history at Oxford University, Thomas Arnold, writes of the resurrection, thousands and tens of thousands have gone through the evidence which attests the resurrection of Christ, piece by piece, as carefully as ever a judge summed up on the most important case. I've myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I've been used for many years to study the history of other times. His biography on the Roman Empire, his three-volume work, is, is seen as one of the greatest works of uh, historical literature of, of all time, and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who've written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And furthermore, the secular historians, Josephus and Suetonius, who also attest to the belief in the resurrection. But there's also the human element of it. If this is a lie, when I lie, I lie because I perceive it will go better for me if I lie than to tell the truth. Okay, it's why sometimes, more so when the boys were younger, um, I would lie and say I didn't smell the nappy uh, needed doing because I knew that it would go better for me. I would maybe not have to do it uh, and I'll be in trouble now when I'm at home, but probably Karis already really knows that was going on because I suspect that she probably did that to me too. Um, but there you go. I perceive that it would go better for me if I lie than I tell the truth. Nobody lies for things to go worse. If the apostles are lying about the resurrection, it makes no sense. The lie makes life way worse for them than to say, yeah, you know what, he died and, and that was it. Things go way better for them if they actually deny the resurrection. And we see this even in everyday life. Chuck Colson, a former a government advisor who was part of the Watergate scandal. Now a Christian reflects back on that time. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. 
How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in, world, in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Or C.S. Lewis puts it just very briefly, men don't die for something they know to be untrue. It's a reliable message. Thirdly, now we get a presentation here in verses 12 to 19 of a hopeless gospel. What does a gospel look like where there is no resurrection, as some were tempted to teach here? And we see here the centrality of Jesus' resurrection for hours. The problems for the Corinthians here was that they doubted theirs. So they, they weren't so bothered about accepting Jesus' resurrection. They're actually kind of okay about that. They, they were more wanting to doubt theirs. And part of it came from, in their worldview, spirit is good, physical is bad. The best possible rescue is to be rid of this horrible physical body and to just be a perfect kind of pure spiritual body, not held back by the limitations and the sin and everything else of the human body. So a gospel without resurrection sounds great to them in their culture. But the gospel minus a bodily resurrection is a false gospel. Look at verses 12 to 15 there with me. Paul summarizes numerous times. We hear it of his trial in the end of Acts. He summarizes the charge against him as saying, I'm here because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. That's what this is really about. And Paul tells us here, verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, how can some say there's no resurrection of the dead? There's a logical inconsistency here. Why? Verse 13, because if there's no resurrection, not even Christ has been raised. How can we possibly know, and we've said it before, that Jesus was legitimate in his claims to be God because he's explicit in that? Okay, and if he's not, if what he says isn't true, you can't say he's a good teacher, but he was not God. He claims to be God. He tells his followers to take up their cross and follow him, to give up their lives for him. He's he's not good if that's not true. He's wicked. He's Charles Manson, wicked, if that's not true. How do we know that Jesus was legitimate in his claims? Well, because he rises. It's crucial. If he doesn't, verse 14, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. The word is literally empty. It's nothing there. It's vacuous. But it's even worse than that because he says, actually, we'd be found to be misrepresenting God because Jesus claims that he did, that he would. And prophecies claim that he will. The gospel minus a bodily resurrection is a false gospel. Secondly, the gospel minus a bodily resurrection is a powerless gospel. Verses 16 to 18 there. There's a great article in in The Spectator this weekend. Actually, if if you haven't seen it, the front cover, in fact, is a picture of the resurrection scene of the empty tomb. And James uh, Mumford writes, uh, ultimately, transformation is what Easter is about. A man bodily raised from the dead and returning in his new body neither corpse nor ghost, to have breakfast with his friends. This life after life after death, as it's been termed, was a completely novel idea, which became the basis of a hope which changed everything. The gospel minus a bodily resurrection is a powerless 
gospel. Verse 17 here tells us, if Christ hasn't been raised and your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. It has an effect for the living. Resurrection proves that Christ's sacrifice was accepted and then therefore your sins are forgiven. But it has an effect for the dead as well. Verse 18 here, those who have fallen asleep in Christ then have perished. There's no hope for them actually to return then, is there? They've just simply ceased to exist. The gospel starved of the power of resurrection is good for nothing. There's no hope for the future. There's no security for the present. And finally here, the gospel minus a bodily resurrection is a pathetic gospel. I don't know whether you will have caught uh, during the course of COVID um, the big celebrity sing-along of Imagine or organised by Gal Gadot and, and she's received quite a lot of criticism I suppose for that I mean really they're all culpable but it was utterly pathetic one of the most completely emotionally tone-deaf celebrity attention-seeking moments of COVID that somehow in the midst of people losing their lives, losing their livelihoods, what we really need to hear is a bunch of celebrities singing, imagine there's no heaven, smiling down the camera as if we should be thanking them. Oh, thank you so much for remembering us poor mortals and inspiring us. Imagine there's no heaven. What a pathetic message. How hopeless. And quite rightly, criticised for being completely tone deaf. The gospel minus resurrection is just such a pathetic, lifeless, hopeless message. You'd be better not to speak of Jesus at all if you'll not speak of him as bodily raised. Paul sums it up. Amazingly, here in verse 19, if in this life only we've hoped in Christ, if there's no hope of an eternal life with him beyond this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. The gospel is about more than this life. And if the gospel doesn't really offer a real eternal reward, then Christians are to be pitied because of its call. What does the gospel call for us? It calls for us to lose our life, to die to ourself, to carry a cross. If all we're doing is losing everything now and with no reward, we're to be pitied. Why bother? And then finally, we get this hope-filled gospel in verses 20 to 26 here we finish with this wonderful hope-filled gospel that comes through the resurrection we have this change here but in fact Christ has been raised he's been raised here verse 20 the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep Jesus's death and then resurrection gives hope for the faithful dead and resurrection is our hope not a disembodied heaven what we're waiting for is a new earth For as by a man, verse 21 here, that is Adam he's speaking of, came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Through Adam's rebellion and his decision to grasp up at equality with God by reaching for the fruit on the tree, not being content and satisfied with the place that God had given him, being made in the image of God, it wasn't enough. I wanted to be God, this serpent tells him. Look, God knows he won't surely die. He knows you'll be like him. Reach up for equality with him. And as Adam does that, he brings the curse of sin and death upon all of us. And we join him in it because we make the same decision time after time. Through Adam's rebellion to try to take God's place, he brought the curse of death to creation. But now through Christ's obedience, through him reaching up to be nailed to a tree, being willing to give up his place and position with the Father in heaven, to come down, to live as one of us, to live for us in our place, to be obedient to the point of death. Now has life been brought to the creation. Jesus, our righteous representative, reverses the curse of sin that Adam, our lousy representative, brought upon us. So Christ, verse 23, here's the first fruits. Then at the coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection gives us a little foretaste of our resurrection too. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every enemy, every ruler, every authority, every power. Don't mistake Jesus' disavowing power. Jesus, to be sure, doesn't see equality with God, a thing to be grasped, makes himself the form of a servant, obedient even to the point of death on the cross. But do not mistake that for disavowing power. His kingdom will come. Its power, in some ways, deferred. We must accept both images of Jesus, both the Jesus who is humble and meek and servant as he comes to die on a cross, obedient and submitting to the Father's plan, but that should not be seen as pacifism. This is a determined plan to secure his eternal kingdom. And he'll come back in power and glory to take his kingdom, to overthrow and destroy all his enemies, and both are legitimate images of Jesus. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, verse 26. In being resurrected, he shows that he has defeated death and that we may overcome death too. So now to go backwards one verse to finish here, verse 25. He must reign until he's put his enemies under his feet. Jesus is no pacifist victim. His inactivity, seeming now, secures an eternal reign. And here's the hope. That Jesus will return to take what's his, to overthrow the rulers and to reign in righteousness and justice. So, as we finish, where does this victory really make a difference to us? Where does it really make a difference? Not in the same way that things will make a difference to people as they try to live vicariously through people. As I could say, grown men will call in tonight crying almost about their sports teams. It doesn't really make a difference to their life, does it? It's just that living vicariously through them. They'll talk of we and us. and They were no part of it at all. But where does it really make a difference 
to us. Well, if Jesus rose, then he really is God and he really has power to save. If he rose, then he really has put to death your sin. If Jesus rose again, then he really can raise you. And if he rose to new life, we can really hope for new life in him. I'm going to pray and then we will uh, sing our closing song together. Father God, I thank you for the wonderful, hope-filled, powerful message of the gospel that is completely centered around your son, Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us that sets us free, that puts to death our old life of sin and shame and rebellion against you and welcomes us in now as your brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of the Father in heaven. We thank you for the hope and the life, the power in this message. Father, I pray for each one of us this morning, whatever place we may be in, however we may be feeling just now, that you might remind and rekindle that passion and that security in you and in the knowledge of your love and your grace and your salvation for us. We thank you that your death and your resurrection has changed everything for us. And Lord, we pray, will you help us to live in light of the new life of resurrection in you? And Lord, we look forward to the moment in which we will see all of this culminate again and we will see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We'll see you as you are and we will be like you. So Father, we close by praying, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Amen. We're going to